This podcast was recorded on the 29th of March, 2021. Welcome to Farmside Today, our regular podcast about what's happening in pharmaceutical science, hosted by Professor Gina Martini, Chief Scientist of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Visit www.orpharms.com forward slash podcast for more Farmside Today and other podcasts. You can help us support the work of pharmacists by joining. Membership is just 60p a day. And now over to you, Gino. Hello, my name is Gina Martini. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Derek O'Hagan, who is Senior Advisor in R&D Vaccines for GlaxoSmithKline. Derek, how are you, sir? Great, thanks. Nice to, nice to connect with you. Uh, Derek, it's good to see two people from the Northwest, or one from Liverpool, one from Birkenhead. It's uh, great to get the same accent out there. So, Derek, you're quite a rare breed, really. You're a pharmacist, but also you're doing research and development in, in the field of vaccines, and I believe throughout your career. Can you give our members a potted history about your career in academia and industry as a pharmacist working in, in vaccines? I did my pre-registration training as a pharmacist in, in Liverpool hospitals. I was mostly in Walton and Fazakali some other specialities and some of the other hospitals. Then I went back to Nottingham, which had been the place for my first degree in pharmacy. I did a PhD, but even from the outset of the PhD, I was very interested in vaccines and and credit to my supervisor, uh, Professor Bob Davis. He actually let me work on vaccines, which wasn't really an area of interest at the time, but it became so afterwards. So really, I focused on vaccines. I thought it was a great topic, did my PhD, became a lecturer in Nottingham. So I guess any of your audience that were at Nottingham in the early 90s would have had the misfortune to be taught by me. It was ne- never what I was best at. I was there for the research, but obviously you teach as well. I got recruited to move to the US. So I've been in the US about 25 years. I've been in small biotech, large biotech. I've been in large pharma. I was in Novartis previously, now GSK. Kind of geographically, I've lived in San Francisco, New York, Boston, D.C. I did a couple of years back in Italy, spent a couple of years in Siena, which was uh, quite an adventure. I enjoyed that. But the, the one thing that's always been prominent is my work on vaccines. I've, essentially, since the Ph.D., I've continued working on vaccines and formulation and delivery of, of vaccines to render them more effective. Wow. So you really have been at the vaccines coalface and you're a pharmacist as well. I, I, I feel it makes you quite unique. It gave me a different perspective and I think it's been helpful. So, I mean, in essence, my career is really focused on formulation and delivery of vaccine antigens by a variety of different routes, regardless of what the antigen is, whether it's a nucleic acid, whether it's a protein, whether it's a conjugate. So, you know, your kind of formulation delivery fundamentals that you learn through pharmacy, it's kind of held me in good position throughout my career. Essentially, that's what I've been doing um, in, you know, in areas of increasing prominence, I guess. And, you know, I'm, you know, quite pleased to say I've seen basic research all the way through to product development and things licensed on the market. So I've done the basic research for products that are currently utilized in immunization practice in the UK. So that's, you know, something that's quite edifying to see all the way through from the basic idea concept. And formulation delivery is always key. It's, you know, it's it's an attribute that that is underappreciated. But of course, people from a pharmaceutical perspective bring a mindset that really enables it to succeed and, and you know, the programs would struggle without without us. There's not enough of us, I would say. Some of my time I spend at conferences, whether it's Controlled Release Society or American Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists. And I really try to push people in the direction 
people with a pharmaceutical background can really contribute you know, novel creative ideas that can enable vaccine development. So I do a bit of teaching as well, at MIT and places like that. And I try to educate not so much pharmacists in the, in the US, it's more chemical engineers who end up doing this kind of thing. European, it's mostly pharmacists or pharmaceutical scientists. So I really try to educate the value of shifting in this direction and try to tell them, you know, the unique capabilities, talents and insights that they will bring that really matter to the development of vaccines. Yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I, I realised in the United States that most of the sort of drug delivery was actually done by chemical engineers, whereas in Europe it was done by, by pharmacists. And that was something I, I really struggled with when I was at GSK. If we were to focus on what you currently do at GSK in the R&D vaccines, can you explain to our members what you do in addition to what you describe? Well, so GSK is a, is a great company to work for because in essence, we have all different kinds of vaccines. So there are many different challenges. We you know all, all the traditional childhood vaccines, you know, vaccines given to elderly, uh, new generation technologies, adenovirus, RNA, adjuvants. So there's a real broad platform of approaches you can utilize to enable vaccines to succeed. So there's a lot of interest at the moment on RNA, for example, We've been busy on RNA vaccines since about 2010. Prior to that, we were very busy on on DNA vaccines, in fact. So what I do or what I've traditionally done, so formulation delivery is a preclinical proof of concept idea to show what has a chance to succeed that's worth moving into clinical evaluation. So I've typically been at the interface of preclinical to clinical, pushing ideas. And, and, of course, what you need, what you push into the clinic initially needs to have the attributes to allow it to keep on moving and be a successful product. And so, you know, most people think about the the biological potency. Does it do the job? Does it induce the immune response? But of course, as a pharmacist, you think about formulation delivery as a key element of ensuring it gets to the right site, induces the right kind of response, which can be related to adjuvants or delivery systems for RNA. But you also think about the, you know, the inherent attributes necessary to be a shelf stable product with a, you know, a shelf life that's appropriate for, you know, distribution around the world and administration to people everywhere. So, you know, a, a lot of the issues are not radically different from what people, pharmaceutical scientists will do in other parts of the industry. So a lot of it is protein. So the protein instability mechanisms and what you need to do to overcome them are quite well established because there's so many monoclonals, for example. So a lot of the the expertise is similar. And then there's unique elements like adjuvants, for example, which I work a lot on. There are a number of vaccines that have been approved and those which are in development. I think it's fair to say that many of our members find it really confusing. Is it possible for you just, just to outline the main differences between the main types of vaccines which have been deployed against the coronavirus? There's so many evaluations ongoing at the moment. People understand and don't understand vaccines because they're very complex. All of us understand the childhood vaccines to some extent. You know, they can be toxoids. They can be protein polysaccharides. They can be a whole virus. They can be recombinant protein. But they are, we can call them traditional vaccines. They've been around for quite some time. And then the question emerges, oh, there's a pathogen. It's a problem right now. Which of those technologies should we use to address it? The first thought is probably, oh, let's do recombinant proteins because they're established, safe and effective and work very well. But the problem is they take a while. So 
there are recombinant proteins with adjuvants moving through clinical development now. And probably Novavax is the most advanced. They got a, a great readout of about a month ago, of like 90% efficacy in a, in a clinical trial in the UK. So clearly the proteins are going to work. And then there's still some argument that they, you know, the protein-based ones may be better vaccines. But when the pandemic emerged, it was clear we needed a solution as, as quick as possible. And so RNA has been looked at for the last decade by, by GSK, by Moderna, by BioNTech, by CureVac. So RNA was not new. It's been really explored for about a decade. And, you know, the GSK perspective is, well, we make vaccines ut utilizing a broad range of technologies. We don't make RNA vaccines. We make vaccines. And our question is, well, where does RNA better than the other technologies? Where does it fit? Where does it bring advantages? And the clearest advantage it brings is speed. And there are other advantages of ease of manufacturing because like, it's a platform technology. They're all the same. It can, you know, it, attributes of the kind of immune response may be beneficial, but it's definitively the quickest, essentially because the sequence is of, of, the, of the pathogen is on the, is on the web. You see the sequence. For an RNA, it's, it's an enzymatic production. The nucleosides are readily available. You build the DNA and you just use enzymes to build the RNA off the DNA. And, you know, we did a proof of concept six or seven years ago that that could happen and you could immunize a mouse within two weeks of the sequence being available on the web. So RNA is definitively the quickest. And that's what we saw. You know, Moderna were the quickest. Pfizer-BioNTech were soon after. So, so RNA has been explored extensively for a number of years. Moderna had programs on flu, CMV, etc. We have various programs. But when the pathogen emerged for the pandemic, what can we do that's the quickest? Companies chose to run with RNA and it was a brave decision, but it was brave, but also heavily supported, obviously, by the by the US government. So RNA was the quickest. The, the bigger question was, is it going to be safe and effective? because it's never been broadly utilized. It was an essentially a relatively new technology, but it's remarkably safe and remarkably effective. So that's marvelous. RNA was the first. And then what's also emerged are the adenovectors. And so RNA, instead of the protein, the recombinant protein, you simply encode the antigen of interest into the sequence of RNA the RNA gets into your cells because it's delivered by lipid nanoparticles and the antigen of interest, the spike protein from COVID in this situation, is expressed and generates the immune response. So it's the quickest because you don't need to do a stable cell line, probably a mammalian cell line, ex vivo, that's going to express the antigen, which you then need to purify, show it's the right antigen. So establishing stable cell lines for protein expression and purification established, we know how to do it, but it takes a while. And RNA is a remarkable shortcut where you just have the sequence of RNA, you inject it, and then your body produces the protein. And, you know, adeno is kind of somewhat similar. With the RNA, you're using a lipid nanoparticle, a, you know, a, a fabricated structure to deliver, to protect the RNA, to deliver it into cells. So it's a synthetic delivery system for the synthetic RNA. Adeno, well, adeno has been around for a long time. It's a, it's a human pathogen. We're routinely infected with adenoviruses. There's probably about 50 different ones that gives you know, minor coughs and colds. 
So you can make the adeno attenuated so it doesn't cause an infection, and you can use its ability to deliver nucleic acids. In the adeno's perspective, it's a DNA. So the same antigen you can express as a protein or encode as an RNA, you insert into the adeno vector, and then you use the vector to deliver the DNA into cells. So it's either express and purify the protein, slowish, but it's actually, you know, it's happening now. It's, it's still been remarkably quick. The RNA is the you know, quickest way to synthesize something and be able to inject it. They're, they're available. Adeno a little bit slower because it's a viral vector that you need a cell line to produce the viral vector. Um, but, you know, a bit, bit more established. I mean, there was an Ebola vaccine that's licensed that's based on adeno. There was programs on HIV, malaria, and obviously University of Oxford has done a remarkable job in combination with AstraZeneca. Um, I mean, it's really a credit to them that they've made the vaccine the cheapest and most readily available. They're really trying to make the vaccine for the world, and that's great to see. Um, but, you know, of course, why would Oxford could move quickly? Because Adrian Hill and Sarah Gilbert have been working on adeno for decades. They've been trying to make malaria vaccines, TB vaccines in particular. So they had the vector readily available. And then, in fact, they were working on MERS, if I remember correctly, an alternative coronavirus. So they just quickly switched what they had. So RNA is the quickest. Adeno is pretty damn quick because there was so much work already done and because essentially there were programs underway to evaluate them in different settings, including alternative coronaviruses. Recombinant protein, which you would say is the kind of more traditional at this point, is slower. But those vaccines will come. And in fact, you know, it's still to be te- to be determined if the, you know, the proteins will have attributes that make them more effective or better candidates for worldwide use. You know, temperature, room temperature stability, possible, more likely fridge stable. You know, I think we're all aware of the, you know, the frozen issues with with the RNA, despite it being remarkably safe and effective. The distribution is not easy. So that's a kind of broad overview. Hopefully that was illuminating. Derek, absolutely. You very eloquently summarized the main differences, but also a very key point. And the very key point was uh, these work programs had been researched and reviewed for a long, long time. Because there was a fear, a perception that shortcuts had been taken. Things have been fast-tracked too quickly. We are building on long-established research programs. And you've eloquently summarised that and substantiate that. Thank you for that. Very, very important. Because yeah. I'm always concerned about vaccine hesitancy and people being yeah. concerned. And, and to your point, none of the usual elements of a development programme were not present. It was all done remarkably quickly. But why? Because in essence, the huge financial investment was made that everything was done at risk. They started phase one while they were building phase two material and building phase two capabilities while also planning for phase three. So it was possible to do it remarkably quickly because of the huge investment of the U.S. government. But there's there's another aspect that people don't seem to appreciate. Um, A phase three efficacy trial for vaccine candidates often takes years because essentially most pathogens are present um, in limited. So they, they circulate in certain areas for brief periods of time. The, the problem, well, it, the efficacy trial for COVID was relatively simple, essentially because of the pandemic. 
there was a massive amount of circulation of the pathogen in many places simultaneously. So it's a numbers game of how many people are infected versus how many people are protected. If the pathogen wasn't circulating so widely, those trials would have taken longer because you have to capture the number of events to get the statistical efficacy. So the problem allowed the trial to move quickly. That makes perfect sense because you can recruit the patients quickly because they're they're suffering from the virus. One question I would like to ask you, and it's been asked to me, is one vaccine can be given in two shots and one can be given in in one shot. Why is there a difference that way? Why is one vaccine given in one go and one split into two goes? If you step back, your immune system usually works much better with an exposure followed by a delay, followed by a second exposure. And in an ideal world, there'll be a, a significant delay and then a third dose. So that's the best way to get high levels of immunity. And, and you'll see that in you know, childhood vaccines are typically one, two, then three doses. But of course, that takes a while. So ideally, you'd, you'd make vaccines work in as few doses as possible. But the, I mean, the, the reality is you end up with the recommendation based on the trial you did. If, if I remember correctly, Oxford and AZ actually thought about doing a single dose vaccine originally. And then they, based on what they saw in preclinical models and early phase studies, they said, OK, I think we maybe need we need a second dose. J&J, call it brave. I mean, call it, you know, but they made the decision that they were going to go with a single dose. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth. Is it going to be enough? Is it not? Maybe two doses are better. And in fact, J&J also have trials underway with two doses. So your licensure and your what the vaccine is used for is based on the trial you did. Only J&J did the single dose trial. You know, you look at the RNA vaccines and the level of immune response isn't high after a single dose. So you might think that a second dose is really necessary. But in fact, the UK in particular has been doing single dose and delay. And then there's accumulated evidence that, in fact, that is beneficial. The J&J is is a unique, distinctive one, and it's a single dose. I think that's advantageous from a practical perspective. But it's not to say one of the other technologies couldn't have worked out the same if they'd done that trial. So right now, there's a study ongoing to investigate the use of different vaccines. I know the the game plan is to vaccinate you, say, the Pfizer first dose, and then the second dose is Pfizer. But just in case there comes a situation where you have to mix and match, as they say, say, give a Pfizer, then an AstraZeneca. What's your view on the viability of mixing and matching? Will it still work as well, doing that approach? And again, you know, of course, it needs to be validated with, with you know, focused clinical evaluations. But there's a lot of accumulated data that says, actually, it's going to work really well. So there's lots and lots of preclinical data where mix and match modalities really work well together. And in fact, but if you even if you look in the clinical setting and we could focus on the Oxford group, for example. So the Oxford group were really when Ebola emerged in 2014, reemerged, there was a lot of push to develop vaccines as quickly as possible. And in fact, what the Oxford group showed is that an adenovector didn't boost itself very well on second dose, but it was remarkably good when it was used in prime boost. In that situation, it was a completely different vector. It was MVA and modified vaccinia. But they showed two vectors, one after the other, works really much, much better than the same vector used twice. 
And so in essence, that's a clinical validation of the concept of prime boost. Of course, you've got to challenge that with very different modalities, an RNA and a vector together, for example. But there's preclinical data that suggests that it will work well. So you're quite optimistic that, you know, if we had to mix and match, that they should work based upon the data you've seen so far? Well, again, I, you know, it's got to be validated. You can't just do it. I mean, if, you know, in certain sets, obviously the UK made a fairly radical decision to utilize the first dose as broadly as possible and then not worry about the second dose. <clears throat> and other countries haven't done that. I, I think the evidence is bearing out that that was a good move, but it was quite a radical idea to move so far away from what was validated in the trials. And I think the idea of different vaccines being used together, I think you need to validate that before you really try to implement it. So that that's, again, a bit more of a radical change from just delaying the second boost. I mean, so, the, you know, generally speaking, I, I mentioned it earlier, your, your immune system works better when there's an exposure and a delay and another exposure. And in fact, a longer delay normally makes it work better. So, you know, the idea that what the UK did perhaps wasn't too radical based on the accumulated body of evidence. But of course, many people were critical and said, look, look, you know, you're doing what wasn't done in the trials. Therefore, this should not be done. But the idea of one one vaccine followed by another, I think that's a more radical departure that would need to be seriously validated before it was implemented. I think it's the word that used that body of evidence, that accumulated knowledge. We're blessed to have these experts in and around us that exactly those informed decisions. The emphasis at the moment is on jabbing, but could we see an oral vaccine being created to combat the virus? So, yeah, absolutely. So there are, I mean, one particular va- vaccine I know of has done a phase one evaluation for, for oral. Um, it's a technology, it's been around, it's, it's another adeno, actually. It's an adeno that's kind of self-adjuvanting because it expresses double-stranded RNA in addition to the antigen. So that's a, a California company. They did a phase one trial. The company was very positive. They saw good T-cell responses. A lot of the community was more negative because they didn't see much on the antibody profile. So, you know, oral and other mucosal respiratory vaccines, intranasal vaccines, it's all being evaluated. And a number of different technologies are in clinical evaluation for intranasal. But of course, you've got a there's an accumulated body of evidence over many decades that showed it's not easy. You know, put it that way. So oral vaccines are ideal because everyone would rather take a tablet, etc. But the only oral vaccines that we have are attenuated pathogens. So the pathogen itself. So, you know, polio virus, for example, rotavirus. So the pathogen is able to infect the mucosal epithelium in the gut and you attenuate it so it can still do its job, but doesn't make people sick. There are no examples of licensed products where you use a vector to deliver an antigen. And that's what this, the company is called Vaxars, that's their phase one trial. You know, maybe intranasal has got more of a chance of succeeding. But again, there's been a lot of attempts over many years and we don't have very many intranasal vaccines. You know, Flumist is a is a great product in terms of the accumulated data, um, but it's never been that commercially successful. So, you know, mucosal delivery is interesting. It's under evaluation. But it's not easy. You've got natural biological, physiological barriers that keep us safe and intact and stop us not reacting inappropriately. 
and essentially mucosal vaccines are trying to overcome those barriers. Thank you, Derek. That's really, really interesting. We want to finish off uh, with this question, future gazing. What does the future look like from your perspective in a post-pandemic world? Looking forward to getting me vaccine and getting back to the UK to visit me, mum. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> my priority. So, I mean, more, more seriously, the vaccines coming in, some degree of return to, if not normality, a better place where we can be perhaps less isolated. You know, I've, I've been at home for a year, barely gone anywhere. I don't think the masks are going away anytime soon. Uh, you know, and it, it depends, you know, what what you mean from the human perspective or the pathogen perspective, because probably the pathogen dictates what the humans are going to do. You know, what you see is the pathogen is evolving. Variants are starting to emerge. Um, those variants causing concern. And, you know, they're causing concern because, OK, in vitro, the neutralizing antibodies induced by the parental strain has some lower degree of ability to neutralize the variant. Does that mean the vaccine will be less protective? Perhaps. We don't know that yet. The variants have been circulating while some of the trials have been underway. And it looks like the vaccines continue to protect everyone from death and hospitalization, regardless of which variants are present in the community. So that's good news. So that maybe suggests that the vaccines and the accumulated use of the vaccines shift the pathogen to a, a non-lethal, a more or less worrying pathogen. You know, and there's, you know, there's many examples, you know, what's going to happen? Well, it's a coronavirus. Coronaviruses have emerged previously, and now they're endemic in humans. So we're all infected by different uh, coronaviruses, but they've evolved to be like common colds. So will this coronavirus go the same way of the three or four others that routinely infect humans? Well, possibly if it becomes only a mild disease, because now we've all got pre-existing immunity and the, the mission right now is to get as many people as possible up to that level of pre-existing immunity, antibodies and T-cells, that maybe they don't block circulation. It's, it's probably going to become endemic at this point. But if it's more, it's a res another respiratory pathogen that causes problems, maybe, you know, like flu, it's an annual one, although it doesn't vary as much as flu. There's going to be vaccines that change every couple of years to keep us updated, to cover the variants. I, I hope it's going to become a manageable solution. But obviously, it only becomes manageable when there's less naive people for it to infect the more it infects people, the more it has the ability to vary. And that's when the variants emerge. That's when people start to worry that it's shifting away from the, the vaccine coverage. But we're still yet to determine exactly what the variants mean. Do the vaccines still fully protect or is it diminished? It's a it's a rapidly evolving field, as, as we can all see. You know, you follow the news every day and there's 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 something new out there. No, I agree with you. I think my vision came to that realisation that, yes, masks are here to stay, certainly for the, for the next 18 months or so. And we'll end up treating this a bit like endemic flu, having, having we'll have COVID-19 vaccination campaigns hand in arm with flu vaccine campaigns. So Derek, obviously, thank you so much for your time. It's been very informative. Our members uh, will be very, very interested to hear your words. Thank you for taking the time from your busy schedule to give an insight into your world of vaccine development as a pharmacist. 
Thanks for joining us at Farmside today. We regularly add new chats with interesting and important figures at www.orfarms.com forward slash podcast. So check back again soon to keep up with the latest in pharmacy and pharmaceutical science. And remember, RPS membership costs just 60p a day. Find out more at www.orfarms.com forward slash RPS membership.